And now, the Mistaken Identity Podcast with David and Frank presents Cultural Conversations, a week-long series on race, religion, and inclusion. The views and opinions expressed are those of the speakers and do not represent those of any team, business, or sponsor. Discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Mistaken Identity with David and Frank. Frank, how you doing today? I am good. Uh, it was uh, cold outside and, uh, you know, there was no Cubs game, so that was exciting <laughs> because it was always cold at the uh, game, so got to get some uh, resting in and some eating. I uh, probably ate three times today, which is not normal because I usually eat four times a day, but you know me. <laughs> Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, unfortunately, I didn't have that luxury of uh, eating three times today. I ate maybe like twice. Uh, kids are, you know, eating inside the house and home right now with this e-learning and all that great stuff. So that kind of leads me into our very special guest who is with us. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Jessica. Jessica, how are you doing today? I am well. I um, I just got off the treadmill, so I'm like, okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm ready. <laughs> well, we want to thank you for uh, joining us this evening and uh, taking uh, time out of your evening to uh, spend it with us. So um, just to dive right in, what you got going on? Um, you're a uh, college professor, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I teach um, sociology. And I teach psychology at the college level. Um, I've been doing that for a little bit over a decade. So since 2009, I've been teaching college or I've been professoring. Um, And then um, in 2016, I started my own business providing professional development services to whoever wants it. So my very first session out the gate was with a police department and then a school district. And so um, since 2016, I've been encouraging um, various entities, um, school districts, individual schools, um, Fortune 500 companies, corporations, global corporations to engage in conversations around uh, diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging in a way that is productive. Um, And so now a lot of my focus has shifted to only that, where not only do I provide professional development um, services and opportunities to those entities, but I also provide coaching to individuals within those entities. Uh, And so busy, busy, busy. So I know the police have uh, been in the news lately. And so I'm just curious, because you brought up the police thing, which I didn't know. What actually, are you able to talk about what you did with the police? Yeah, I mean, this was in 2016. So um, it was on the heels of, um, I don't remember who in 2016. There's been so many every year, right? Um, And so this police department that I worked with, um, predominantly white police department, 
um, predominantly male, predominantly middle-aged or younger men. Um, so it's kind of a, a generation gap a little bit, but so I talked with them, we engaged in conversation around identity and how do we show up when we show up with um, within our communities. And so how, kind of how do we shift from um, this space of policing people to community policing and engagement? Uh, like I said, that was my first time out the gate. So I was incredibly nervous. And so at this point, I wish that I could go back in time and re-engage with them um, because I was, at the time, I was experiencing a little bit of uh, imposter syndrome. Like, how did I get here? Uh, but the more that I, the more that I've done it, the the, the more I know what works. Uh, recently, I also worked with a fire department as well. And the fire department is a is a really interesting entity too because it's the fire department nationally really is like a good old boy system, right? Again, predominantly male, predominantly white, predominantly middle age or young, right? Um, and so it was really interesting having conversations with them as well. And even having conversations with uh, firefighters who were people of color. I think the difference is fire firefighters, um, the, the fire department isn't out here like shooting people, but the structure and the identities are very, very similar. That's what I do. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I wanted to kind of like uh, just let the audience know um, we wanted to bring her on right away. Um, usually Frank and I, we engage in like some banter, you know, have a little fun. But I think this is a subject where we all need to like, um, it's very important to us. And, you know, without getting into like, you know, a real deep dive, it just needs to be, you know, talked about. We need to have these conversations because you know, people are afraid of these conversations. And that's the problem for the setback, you know. And um, we had a personal situation that we can't discuss on the air, but um, we had some similarities, not, you know, police, you know, and but as far as um, the culture, you know, the culture was where it's predominantly a certain, you know, structure and a certain type of demographic and all this stuff. And, you know, people are not being treated fairly. And then um, when these people are outside of their elements, they get treated a certain way. Um, so I think it was very important to come on and just start the conversation right away. Um, jumping back to your profession, um, I brought up e-learning as well because with my kids, they're doing e-learning now. Are you engaging in e-learning as well? Are you uh, in the schools or how's that process going for you? Yeah, I so my kids are doing e-learning. Um, so all four of my kids are at home. Um, but I'm also teaching online. Um, which, you know, at this point it is folks talk about the new normal, right? Like it is the new normal. Uh I personally for all levels of education, I was going to say for higher education, but for all levels of education, I think that there are some real benefits in that um, thinking about like K through 12, kids who have um, things like anxiety disorder or, um, or other ADHD, um, kids who have like neurodiversity, 
um, they benefit from being able to be at home. Uh, I have one one child who um, has an anxiety disorder and going to school is really challenging because they break out in hives. They are like mute for the first month of school and being online has actually really been beneficial. Um, and then thinking about it at the college level, there are so many people related to COVID um, whose family members lost jobs, right? So family members lost jobs, which means that there is a lack of income within the household. These students now, um, some young, some mothers, some, right, all sorts of demographics, they are able to work a job and still take classes and complete their work, you know, at 2 a.m. on Friday night um, after they have worked a full, I mean, hopefully not 2 a.m., but whatever time, right? So they're able to be flexible with achieving their, um, their degree. So I see so many benefits when I go into the schools and really early on, like, you know, last June, I was having conversations with schools that I was working with and coaching them and telling them like, this is an amazing opportunity to like pop the lid off of what we thought we knew about education. The way that we do education in this country is only related to tradition. We do education this way because we've always done it this way and we don't have the opportunity to think about doing education in other ways. That's it, right? So I'm telling principals and, and administrators like, this is our chance. We get to like pop the lid off of the thing and, and reimagine education. And for some schools, they were able to, to adjust. But there are, I think, in my opinion, far too many schools who are, you know, trying to get back to, let's get back to normal. Um, so, so then what ends up happening is they end up taking this really interesting moment in time and trying to make it fit into a traditional model of education, which I think is harmful to teachers, is harmful to kids, is harmful to administrators. It's really harmful in that we are squashing creativity and ingenuity, or not ingenuity, um, innovation in education. So long story short, everybody in my house is doing e-learning um, and I see some huge benefits. I don't ever want to go back to normal because normal is really harmful. All right. And then uh, before I turn it over to Frank for a question, um, I'm going to make a little joke here so I don't, don't get too crazy. <laughs> uh, but when you're doing e-learning, when you're teaching or when you're, you know, whatever, are you wearing an actual, like, blazer and a skirt or a dress oh. or a your pajamas, what are you doing? <laughs> so it depends, right? So if I'm teaching, if I'm engaging with students, I'm going to be honest though. Like when I first started teaching, I used to try to show up like dressed up. I'm 12 years in the game. So even if I'm on campus, I show up as myself, I show up in leggings and chucks and a t-shirt, you know, and students know, you know, she, she got to show up in leggings and chucks and a t-shirt and blow our minds, right? Like she's, <laughs> you know, um, and so really I wear the same stuff 
that I would wear. And, and honestly, sometimes like I'll get a quick workout in, um, throw my little glasses on, put on some earrings and I'm good. I, so, so, um, no, I'm not dressed up, but if I am doing a professional development session with a corporation, then I'm going to make sure that I have on my yellow sweater or, um, a yellow shirt or something that's yellow. Um, but you better believe I have on leggings and house shoes. But you have on like the, the yellow top with PJs and <laughs> shorts. Yep, and some house shoes. Like I'm not, mm-mm. no, I'm not dressing up at all. Although um, last week I had to have a meeting with a school that I want to start working with and it was a face-to-face meeting. And I had to like, you know, I had to put on real clothes and real shoes. And I got to the school and she was like, let's take a tour around the school. And I was like, hold on, let me take these shoes off. Like these shoes, they're super cute. These shoes though are for meeting. They're not for walking. So, (laughs) so yeah. So I'm a blessed, um, even though sometimes it feels like a curse, but I'm blessed that my younger male cousins uh, always want to come over to my house. Like they always want to be here, be around me. If I'm going somewhere, we're going too. Um, But I've noticed uh, when they were doing uh, e-learning, one of them, and I can leave the room and they're learning and everything's great. The other one, if I leave the room uh, and I come back, or I sit down for at least an hour or so, I can hear the remnants of a video game Mm -hmm. on somewhere or somehow. So my question is, uh, is e-learning also hurting some um, students who may, you know, be Mm -hmm. easily distracted? And how do we reach them? Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think that, that we have an obligation to recognize See how my voice changes from like, I would have all leggings too. I think that we have an, I think we have an obligation to recognize. No, I think we, we have an obligation to recognize that people learn and engage with material differently. And that I think is, is the, the thing that, that we have missed in this moment. Education should be tailored toward, tailored for the students and how they learn. I used to, when I first started teaching, I had this thing, and a lot of academics have this, called the teaching philosophy. And in my teaching philosophy, I had like, this is the way that I have learned to teach, right? This, these are my pedagogical um, perspectives. And then after teaching for about five years, seven years, I was like, why am I concerned with my teaching philosophy when I am teaching people who have a learning philosophy, right? Like, what do people need to learn? And that might look different depending on things like neurodiversity. It might look different depending on social class. It might look different depending on neighborhoods. It might look different, right? So it looks different depending on a lot of things. So oftentimes, all you have to do is think about a map, right? When we are planning to go somewhere, we start with the destination in mind, and then we kind of work backwards. That's not what we do in education. What we do in education is we have said, this is the path, right? 
even though the end result doesn't look the same for every student, we have said, this is the path. And whatever happens after that, that's on you. Wherever you land, that's on you. And I think that's really problematic. So then if we start with how do students learn and then we work backwards, then that will inform our teaching. So then what that'll look like is the modes of providing education would look different for different students. So I've got four kids, even within my household, I've got four different ways of learning, right? One of my children, I'm like, yo, you might benefit from being back in the classroom. Um, But I mean, we haven't done that yet, Uh, but for her being back in the classroom with that structure would be beneficial. For my oldest child, being in the classroom is really boring for her. That kid is a, I'm not kidding when I say like, you know how parents are like, my kid is a genius. Um, My kid is actually a genius, right? (laughs) So being in the classroom for her is like, (sighs) and then teachers end up relying on her to teach the other kids how to do the work, which isn't really fair. So then being at home means that she's able to get her work done. But then part of the day, she's like practicing piano, right? Um, And so if we have that in mind, like what is the end goal? We want to know how students learn. Then we structure education to meet that need rather than just saying this is a one size fit all for every single child because it ain't. Absolutely, because I deal with... uh... Same thing, four different sets of personalities. Uh, luckily, my daughter, my oldest daughter, she's 25, so she's outside of the home. But my, my kids started in school. My son is 16 and my daughter's 10. Like, we got two different things going on, and my son seems to function well at home. He can do a thing. And my daughter, she probably needs to be engaged in the classroom. It's like, you know, I think that learning structure would be better for her. But um, mm-hmm. you mentioned that you had four children, correct? Yep. Let me guess, three girls and a boy, right? Yep, yep. And what's the age breakdown? Uh, 14, 13, 12, and seven. Well, not quite 12. She'll be 12 this year. So 14, 13, 11, and seven. And is the seven, the seven-year-old is doing e-learning also? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's it's great for him. It's like <laughs> he it's computer all day. <laughs> well, it's great for him because if he were in school, like he struggles with he has a great deal of social anxiety. Uh and so like interacting with people in person, he's like, mm I can't do it. Nope. Mm-mm. Um, so being on the computer, he's able to like take a break when he, when needed. I mean, it's, it's been great for him. I, I am interested though. in like, I think that he needed this year. So I'm interested in seeing like how he adjusts to going back into the classroom. Hopefully he maintains that confidence, but his first couple years of school, I was like, Ooh, so this, this has really been a, a, a great, um, almost kind of a reprieve for him. So if you um, had to make a choice, I mean, obviously you don't want to pick between your children. Obviously you love them all, but if you had to pick one that's, that's really, really like excelling in e-learning, which one would it be? 
excelling in e-learning. Um, or, or, or that's just really, because I know your seven-year-old is probably, that's got to be the favorite. I mean, because they're just you know, starting off and, you know, you can you can teach them a number of things just by, you know, yeah, numbers, yeah, yeah. Letters, things of that nature. So um, I was just curious. I, I mean, kid too, by the way. So that's an unfair question. Oh, say it again? I said, he's my favorite kid too. So that's an unfair question. Uh, oh, we're gonna skip that <laughs> I'm just kidding. Edit that out. Edit that out. Don't let nobody hear that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have favorite kids, but if I did, he would be the first runner up. I'll say it that way. <laughs> um, and then before I turn it over to Frank, I had a, um, and well, let me go back. Let me go back. Uh, this is going to be a, like a little, you don't have to answer. You can skip it. Um, but it, I don't know if you saw the situation um, at the, one of the, I, think, I want to say it was, oh my goodness, I'm drawing a blank, but it was a suburban school, a high school, where they did a reenactment of the George, George Floyd incident. Mm. So I wanted to ask you, have you ever encountered anything to that nature or anything uh, relatively close to that or you know, like a problematic incident with you know those type of incidents? I experienced so much, like, um, I had not heard that, but I have seen so many incidents, um, firsthand, you know, and in, in some respects, especially the incidents that have been directed toward me, they have been attempts at silencing, right? So, Stop talking about this is really the, the underlying theme. For instance, um, I was teaching one semester and we did the teaching evaluations. And um, on the teaching evaluations is anonymous, right? So I don't know who wrote it. And one of my students who had been in my class for 16 weeks, we did the teaching evaluation week 15. Um, so had been sitting in my class for 15 weeks, wrote on the evaluation, um, the N words, not the N words, but the actual word with a hard ER should hang from my tree in my yard and women should shut the and be in the kitchen. Right. So I took it to my dean like, yo, this feels like a threat. Um, somebody who's in my class for 15 weeks, they know a lot about me. They know, you know, like, um, and, and they just said on this evaluation, the N word should hang from not just some random tree, but from their tree in their yard and that women should shut the, and be in the kitchen, you know? Um, I mean, I've had like, swastikas painted on, you know, size of buildings that I lived in. I've had, you know, so personally, um, I've had students write papers that were, I had one student kind of in, in my first, second year of teaching, wrote a paper and the name of the paper was Dick. And the paper was six pages of the word dick over and over again. 
right? Like, I mean, there's been so many, there's another student who wrote this paper um, and plagiarized it from, plagiarized it from a white supremacist website, like copied and pasted it from a white supremacist website, turned it in. And I told, I started reading the paper and started crying because the premise of the paper was that black people are inherently biologically violent. And because they are inherently biologically violent, it doesn't matter how much education they have. It doesn't matter how many degrees they have. It doesn't matter how much money they have. They are biologically inherently innately violent. And she turned that paper into me and I start typing it into Google. Like these, first of all, these ain't her words. She'll know these words. And, um, and it came up word for word. So I gave her an F. She came to my office. Why did I get an F? Well, well, I mean, because you plagiarized it. Now, setting aside the fact that this is racist and also it's from a white supremacist website. No, I typed those words. Those are my words. And my grandmother read it and she said it was fine. And I was like, I hate to tell you this, but your grandma's racist. <laughs> Um, you know, so, so those kind of things happen all the time and they've only made me like, oh, we, we got to talk about this. Like, thank you for giving me examples to use, um, when I'm having conversations. I had a conversation two weeks ago with a group and I talked to them about, when I moved to Northern Illinois, I lived in Northern Illinois for eight years. And when I moved to Northern Illinois, I had lots of incidents, but one incident in particular, this mother, my daughters at the time were one, two, and three. I was looking for a daycare provider. And um, when I was looking for this daycare provider, the daycare provider that I was visiting with, she was like, so do they all have the same dad? And I was like, they are one, two, and three. Ain't no shame in having different dads for your babies. But I need you to assume they are one, two, and three. I need you to assume that they all got the same dad unless I tell you otherwise. And the fact that you can ask that question out loud of me to me. And so I'm in this session and I'm explaining that to this group, explaining microaggressions and what microaggressions are, right? And one of the people in the group was like, well, that's so egregious, you know, something like that, that very rarely happens. And I was like, oh, I got, how much time you got? Because I got plenty of stories just related to my experience. And so um, I've had so many different experiences um, where again, they have only served to like provide examples for the textbook, right? So I can go in and have conversations about folks like, okay, here's the definition of the thing. Here's what it looks like. Here's a personal story about how that happens. And then also how I dealt with it, which doesn't mean that that's, you know, the only way to deal with it. But, um, but yeah, I mean, there's always, especially in the roles that I have, 
you know, I have another, one more story. So another um, incident, I was providing a professional development session to this group and town, um, the average income was like 36,000. I make more than 36,000, right? And um, I was having conversations with this group and I was like, you know, here's what privilege looks like. You know, while I don't have white privilege, I fully recognize that I have class privilege. And I started thinking and talking about all the ways that I had class privilege. And I said, in fact, you know, the life that I have lived and the privilege that I have had has allowed for me to have more access to things and including things like educational opportunities and and the like um, than the majority of white people in this society. The majority of white people in this society have not had as much access in terms of social class as I have had, right? And one of the people in the room was like, didn't you say you're from Chicago? Huh. Right? Like, like <laughs> yeah. Um, and another person said to me, um, like, well, you know, you said you moved back to Chicago, but did you move back to Chicago because it's safer or did you move back to Chicago because you're just accustomed to the violence? And I'm like, geez, these folks are, right? So then those very clear examples of, and I'd be like, oh, thank you for that for, for providing me with that because I'm using it next time. Uh, so I just want to um, switch over to talk about us real quick. Now, I saw on Facebook today this post um, that said, uh, Black don't crack, but the mind does. Therapy is okay. At the bottom, it says, stop the shame. Um, so what do you think about this... Um, I guess, shame in our community for asking for help with depression or therapy in general. What do you you think about that? So I am currently, um, again, an unfair question because I am currently finishing yet another degree um, in mental health counseling. And what I want to talk about or what I want to, the clients that I want to work with um, when I get licensed are people who deal with racialized or gendered trauma. That's it. Um, I think that there is a great deal of shame related to um, asking for help and also for being vulnerable, right? Like there's a great deal of shame associated with vulnerability because for so long and so many generations, we have had to be strong strong in air quotes, Um, we've had to be strong just to stay safe. We've had to hide our emotions just to stay safe. We've had to like be, have real tenuous relationships with people just to remain safe. And that has led to some trauma. There's this idea called epigenetics and epigenetics suggests that, um, the trauma of our ancestors is imprinted on our genes. And I, and I also believe that if trauma is imprinted on our genes, then joy also has to be imprinted on our genes, right? Like our ancestors pass down certain things, but trauma is definitely one of them. 
what that means then is that even though we can't really, we can't get rid of the trauma or we can't fix the trauma that our parents and grandparents, et cetera, had, if we are here, we have an obligation to recognize that we are dealing with both intergenerational trauma, which is the legacy of trauma, but also intragenerational trauma. And that is the trauma that we experience in, within this generation. So my siblings and I engaging and right. So then we have, I think my bias is everybody should go to therapy. Even if you think you good, go to therapy. Um, my kids are in therapy. Like, you know, um, I have been in therapy and then again, finishing this degree in, um, in mental health counseling to provide therapy. And so I think, again, there is a great deal of shame associated with going to therapy and saying that I need a little help, you know, crossing over this, this moment. Um, depression is real. What we also know currently, and we used to say this in the social sciences that one thing Black folks don't do, Black folks do not engage in suicide, right? Like Black folks are the group that is less likely, least likely to commit or attempt suicide. Well, that has changed. Our suicide numbers are going up, which means that things like clinical depression, major depressive disorder um, that impacts Black folks is going up. Right. And so and and then also th- this other piece of that, though, is like the church itself will shame people for seeking help outside of the church. I was listening to this um, person preaching recently, just happenstance, um, and I quickly turned it off because it was um, what does the Bible say about mental illness? And the takeaway was, you ain't praying enough. And I was like, do you mind if I curse? I was like, fuck that. Right? Like, if there is a God, God ain't like, you ain't praying enough, so I'm about to give you major depressive disorder. You ain't praying enough, so I'm about to give you schizophrenia. Like, if there is a God, that God sucks. Right? Um, and so I think um, I think that there is shame associated with like religious trauma, right? Like all of the, we can't separate these things, but all of it boils down to the trauma that we experience, but also just the day-to-day stuff, right? Like getting up and having to deal with, you know, the um, e-learning and still trying to figure out how to pay my bills and the damn dog and (laughs) right. Like all the things, um, which aren't trauma, but they are situational crises. We need help. Uh, so we absolutely need to remove the stigma from, from around admitting that we need help, but we also need to remove the stigma from around being vulnerable and saying, you know what, I'm struggling right now. Right. Like, I see vulnerability as strength. And, and I, I think that um, for me, and I'm not speaking for anybody else, it's just my personal opinion. I think that's part of the reason why they actually close a lot of the mental health institutions, especially in our communities, because we don't reach out for that, that resource. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And 
me being a child, I actually had to go to therapy. I had to go to see a counselor. I had to go deal with that stuff. My mom had to drag me because I was the same way. I'm like, I don't need help. I'm good. And she's like, no, you're always angry. You're always upset about something. You know, is it because your dad's not here or your sister's in college mm-hmm. and your brother's in college and you're by yourself and, you know, you're not getting, I'm giving you attention or whatever the case may be. I'm acting up to school, mm-hmm. whatever. And um, for me, it was like, it helped me so much. It, it really was an eye opener. And I think part of the reason also is that because people in the community try to shame me for that. Mm-hmm. In, in the community, outside the community, school, wherever, I think they'll try to shame you for that. And that's part of the reason why, you know, we don't get, you know, we don't use these resources that are available to us. And we don't always know that the resources are available. And historically, those resources have been incredibly institutionally and systemically racist, right? And so then not only have we passed down generational trauma, but we've passed down like generational mistrust of, of those institutions. And so, you know, if, if we can get beyond those two things, and that's not to, to blame, that is to say, okay, how do we have conversations that will encourage people to take advantage of those resources and to recognize that those resources exist in a way, again, that isn't shaming and blaming because there's already enough shaming and blaming that happens in religion and in politics and in our households and at, you know, Sunday dinner. It's enough shaming and blaming already. How do we actually engage in conversations to encourage? It's uh, ironic that you brought up the uh, the church and uh... Uh, some of its uh, issues. I was reading an article, um, and the article said the the most segregated day in America is on Sunday, and they were saying how on Sundays uh, the church is uh, you know the biggest sponsor because majority of those that are Hispanic go to one church, the majority that are, that are black go to Baptist or whatever, and the majority that are white go to whatever, and uh, they were just showing how. Uh, you know, the role that the church has played in race issues on the opposite side, even though when you think about it, I go to church myself, even though when you think about it, you're always thinking that the church is the answer to race and what have you. And it just totally changed my mind when I read the article. And I'm like, my God, you're right. Um, you know, uh, Sundays are probably the most segregated days in the country still because everybody goes to their separate places of worship yeah yeah and they'll drive like you know i'll drive 40 miles not me i don't go to church but folks will drive 40 50 miles to go to their segregated church but that says something about um about the history of this nation that's that's really what it says um you should look up so one of my best girlfriends she she writes for um the pew research center Um, I'll send you her information. Um, Look her up. I'll send you some articles that she wrote because she writes about the Black experience and and religion. So she writes about race and religion. I shouldn't say the Black experience and religion, but race and religion Um, and and, um, kind of shifts in dynamics over time. She's also a sociologist. Um, Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, But yeah, there's a lot of research on on. Um, the role of religion in maintaining systems of power, race, gender, sexual orientation, like all the things. 
All right. And then um, on a lighter note, um, before we wrap up. Um, I like light notes. <laughs> I know, right? So I am going to show you the shirt I'm wearing. I want you to guess why I'm wearing it. Okay? Uh-huh. I'm going to pull it up here for you so you can see it. Uh-huh. You, you're, you know wearing I mean? you're wearing it because that's how I met you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Hey, you know what's funny, uh, Jessica? Uh, I believe, Frank, if I'm not mistaken, you actually did a little bit of work at the United Center also, right? Or no? Did you? Yes, and for those that are listening, he's raising up a Bulls uh, shirt. For those of you that, that can't see this, that are hearing, he has on a Bulls shirt. But yes, I did some uh, United Center work for, I think, a year. Yes. Really? What year? Oh, my God. It's been so long. I have no idea. <laughs> so long ago. <laughs> I'm not really sure what year it was. Uh, but I was there. For, it was just one season. I did a couple of Bulls games, I think the circus, and then that was it. Got you. Got you. I was there for um, from 96. So basically, as soon as I turned 16 um, to 99. So, you know. And then um, I start. I was a, a case manager after that. So ninety nine, yeah, ninety nine. I was a case manager starting in like two thousand, I think, something like that. Um, but yeah, was there for the for the second three P. Was that the second three P? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Ninety six to ninety eight. Yeah. 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 So what did you do there? Um, so I was one of the, one of the people that ushered people to their seats. I was a, I don't even remember what we, what we were called. We were the glorified ushers, um, at the United Center and the, and Comiskey Park, which is now, what's Comiskey Park? Uh, U.S. Cellular. U.S. Cellular Field. No, 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 it's not. It's ended again. Guaranteed rate. Guaranteed rate. I will never call it that. It will always be Comiskey Park. Um, you know, yeah, I mean, there was some days that we were like at Comiskey Park, you have a double header there literally all day. You know, I remember like getting up, going to high school, getting out of school, going straight to Comiskey Park, being exhausted, like leaning up against the thing, falling asleep. Like that was that was the moment that I knew that people can actually sleep standing up. Because I did it. I proved that to be a truism. Now, it's funny that you uh, mentioned that because uh, Frank and I, we, we're, at, uh, we're at Wrigley now. And so Monday night, this is crazy, so get ready for this. Monday night was a game. They actually postponed the game for a doubleheader for Tuesday. Mm. Monday night, it didn't rain. Well, they thought it was going to be like a, a huge storm and it wound up passing through. and. You know, we like we as like workers, we always like, well, why is it playing? We could have played Monday, and you know, we always go crazy, just you know, out of you know, out of fun. And yeah, stuff like yeah, that. yeah. So, uh, Tuesday, we worked what twelve hours, right? Twelve hours, and then we came back the next day, which was yesterday, and we worked another almost eight hours because it went into extra energy. Oh man! So it's it's pretty crazy. It's like oh man! I tell you yeah. what, my my calf muscles were good in those days as we had to walk up and down at the half of every inning. So my calves were in really good shape. 
that's the same thing. Yeah, we do that. Well, we we have, well we do well we do more walking. So you know, we're uh, a little bit of elevated position. So we do a lot more walking. It's so busy. But um, what was your favorite moment at the United Center? My favorite moment at the United Center. Um, the last the last game of the. 97, 98 season. Um, like the finals or just in general? The finals. finals. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, folks are on the floor and was, did they win at home that, that season? I don't remember, but one of those games, um, you know, cause I worked on the 100 level. So I sat in the family section um, so I sat with like, but like Tony Kukoc family, right? Um, and like, and, and Randy Brown's family. And Randy Brown is from Chicago. So his family was always there. So getting to know them and like being on the floor with them um, was, was, a, was a really good time. I think that was really memorable. Like all the circuses were also really memorable. Um, but also I remember the Rolling Stones came to Chicago. The Rolling Stones played at the United Center and I was too young to, um, to be actually inside. So I had to work like outside and I remember peeking in and there were like strippers on the stage. So (laughs) I was like, what is happening? Well, that's why they didn't want you inside. That's friend. why they were like, no. I, I, I mean, and I was like 16 and sheltered, right? So it was like, what is this? Did you see, um, did you uh, look at The Last Dance? I did. You know why I watched The Last Dance? I watched The Last Dance to see if I saw myself or any of the people that I knew. You know, so it was fun seeing like Horatio on there and like, you know, all the folks. Um, so yeah, that was really the only reason why I watched The Last Dance. And then I was like, oh, Michael Jordan's kind of a sociopath. <laughs> Which I didn't know. All right, so I'm going to keep mine short because I know we're uh, five minutes over. So I just wanted to thank you for uh, coming on and having some uh, uncomfortable conversations with us. Uh, hopefully you can come back because I'm sure there's a lot uh more uh that's going to go down in chicago when it gets hot that we can come back and talk about Um, so definitely hopefully you can come back with us absolutely and three weeks from now is the anniversary and i hate to call it the anniversary because it sounds celebratory but it's you know one year since the the date of george floyd's death um and so i'm you know, the, some of my clients, I'm like, all right, let's see. First of all, let's see how we can best meet the needs of the people that work for you. But also, let's be prepared. Let's be emotionally prepared, mentally prepared. So, yeah, we'll see what happens in a couple of weeks. Absolutely. And, um, yes, we definitely got to have you back on soon because there's a very special story that I want to uh, share with the audience. But I want to make sure that you're back for that show. It'll be a quick segment or whatever you want to do, like quick, you know, but there's another um, area that I wanted to highlight. We just didn't have time to get to. So yeah, hope it won't be too much too much longer before you get back on the like. Awesome. Say the word. Send me a send me a heads up like an hour before so I'm not like drenched and on the treadmill. <laughs> on the treadmill, yes. <laughs> yeah. So um yes, that's a wrap for um 
this uh, episode of Mistaken Identity on behalf of Frank and myself, David, and thank our wonderful guest, Jessica. We want to thank you for tuning in and we'll see you next time.